tonight we're going to begin looking at uh, Galatians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to spend uh, the entire evening just looking at five verses. And I know for some of you, you're thinking, goodness gracious, he's going to pull five verses in 60 minutes. Well, I don't know if any of you are like me, but growing up, I always sped through the introductory parts of the epistles, right? I would see Paul, an apostle, Peter, an apostle, James, whatever, and then I would get into the meat. Well, really, the introductory also has crucial meat for the believer. And we're going to see here in Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we're going to see that Paul is outlining the whole purpose for this letter. You see, Galatians is an epistle about grace. You'll see here on the, on the slide there, freed by grace. That's something that I've seen throughout Galatians. And so, if you will, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 1. If you don't know where the book of Galatians is, it's in the New Testament. And if you get confused about where it is in the epistle, I like to remember it by the GE Power Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So if you find Philippians or Colossians or Ephesians, you can flip over the GE Power Company. Galatians chapter 1, and what I'll do is I'll read the first five verses here and then we'll dive right into it. Galatians chapter 1, Paul says this, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and to all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. According to the will of our God and Father, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, for your word, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that it is truth. And Lord, even though these words were written almost 2,000 years ago, we trust that, Lord, these words are uh, applicable to us, Lord, at this church, at Cedar Street. Lord, your word sa says that it cuts through bone and sinew. And Lord, I pray and ask that, Lord, as we go through the study of Galatians, that it would change us from the inside out to be more and more like your son. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. You know, Galatians is something that I feel like I've been in uh, non-stop since about October. Outside of just the the um, the brief lessons of in Sunday school or something like that in the manual, uh, I was in uh, Galatians. For those of you who are historians in here, you'll know that the book of Galatians was uh, very fond by Martin Luther. In fact, Martin Luther is, is said to have said that if he could marry an epistle, if he could marry an epistle, it would be the book of Galatians. He he. He sought it as such a truth in his life. In fact, because of the book of Galatians, we are sitting here right now in a Protestant church. He read this and he saw the doctrine of the justification of faith, and then he wrote 95 theses and nailed them to the door in Gutenberg. And from there, we have the Reformation, and this is not a course or anything about that on the Reformation against C. Bo for anything about that. But what I've done is I've been in Galatians, and we're actually doing this right now with the students. In fact, I'm taking taking it a little slower pace with the students. We're going verse by verse. Uh, so you guys might get the better end out of the deal. I don't know. Uh, we're going to spend probably eight to nine weeks looking through the book of Galatians. But Galatians is an epistle of grace. Galatians is an epistle of grace. We see grace beginning in chapter 1, verse 3, where he says grace to you. And we'll see it in the middle in Galatians 2.21. And we'll see it also... In Galatians 6.18, he ends the entire epistle 
by reminding the church of grace. And the reason why he does this is because he wants to remind the church of costly grace. Costly grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, speaking of grace, says this, it is costly, grace is costly, because it calls to discipleship. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. It is costly because it costs people their lives. It is grace because it thereby makes them live. It is costly because it condemns sin. It is grace because it justifies the sinner. We are called into grace by the Father, and we're called into costly grace. And Paul is going to attack the mindset of cheap grace in the book of of Galatians. You see, we're called into grace by the Father, and it is grace that sustains us. It is grace that propels us forward to drink of the sea of mercy of the gospel, to be abandoned to the mission of the gospel, to go out from Metter to Statesboro to Twin City to Claxton to all out in Georgia and into the world to share the gospel. It is grace that propels us for that. Not by my sheer will alone, but only by grace that it's to propel me to the mission of the gospel. So grace is crucial to the life of the believer. You see, if we're not careful in the mindset of grace, if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves thinking that we can earn God's grace. You see, if we're not careful, we'll think that we need to make ourselves look pretty. I told the students this morning, and we were looking at John chapter 2 in the uh, wedding at Cana, I told them that for many of us this morning, we woke up, our hair was going like this way, and those who have beards, the beards were going that way, our breath smelled bad. We had to make ourselves look pretty before we came into church, right? I'm I sure some of you guys you know, put deodorant on, the ladies put perfume. We had to make ourselves look pretty. We have that same mindset when we come to God. Right in the midst of our sin, in the midst of feeling as if we have, we have messed things up and we're unlovable, we feel like we have to make ourselves look lovely so that God would show his favor to us. That's not how the gospel works at all. And that's cheap grace. And that's what Paul is trying to battle here in the life of the believer. You see, Galatians also has a tone in it that is unlike any other epistle. It is a stark tone even with the corinthians who continue to mess up and continue to think that they were better than everyone else paul had a loving tone in the letter even though he did write them that sorrowful letter there is still a loving tone in the book of galatians we don't see this in fact you'll see in galatians 3 1 he says oh foolish galatians who wants to start to have that in a letter to themselves oh foolish person right who has bewitched you it is before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? You see, Paul takes a very stark tone with the church in Galatia and also to us as well. Because the danger here is if we don't get grace, if we don't understand that as a free, unmerited gift of God, if we don't understand grace, we find ourselves in legalism. We find ourselves close to apostasy. We find ourselves close to the abandonment of the faith. We find ourselves more of a country club than a church of Christ. And that is why Galatians exists. It exists for grace. And so Paul is writing here to the church, and he's writing to three parties in this letter. He's writing to the legalist, the person who thinks that they can earn God's love. He's writing to the prodigal 
the one who has abandoned everything about the gospel, the one who has sought after sin and went after the candy-coated pleasures of this world. When I say candy-coated pleasures, I like to think of it like a, like a Tootsie uh, Pop, right? How many, ta- how many licks does it take to get the center of a Tootsie Pop? One, two, three. That's what sin is. It is cheap thrills that think is going to satisfy us, but really, does a Tootsie Pop satisfy us? Or does not a beautiful T-bone steak with mashed potatoes and broccoli and carrots, I shouldn't talk about that because we haven't had dinner yet, right? <laughs> but rather, sin is that, is a cheap thrill. And so Paul is writing not only to the legalist who thinks they can earn God's love, but also to the prodigal who has abandoned God's love in pursuit of this world. There's a third party here, and this is the third party that I want to encourage here tonight, hopefully, is those who have stayed the course in their faith. This is to remind the church of what the gospel is not. Right? Martin Luther said it like this, that Romans tells us what the gospel is. Galatians tells us what the gospel is not. The gospel is not works-based. It is faith-based. And so Galatians is going to teach that. And so this letter to the church is a reminder to stay the course, to remember to pursue grace by faith, not by works so that no one may boast. And so these are the three parties here tonight. And so let's, before we even look at uh, the first five verses, what I'd like to do is just define legalism so that everyone can be on the same page with me about what legalism is. And it's not just my definition, it's several different definitions that I've gathered together. So, before we look at the first five verses, let's define legalism. Legalism is this, is working in your own power. Legalism is working in your own power. Legalism is the antithesis of the gospel. It is the antithesis of the gospel. Where the gospel says, come and rest in the completed works of Christ on the cross, legalism heaps on the burden of trying to earn God's love. So the gospel says, come in faith, Come and see that Christ is good. Come and see by faith that you can receive the free, unmerited uh, grace that he gives us. Come and see and taste. Look and live on Christ. Legalism says, well, let's work on that on our own power. It heaps on the burden of trying to earn God's love by our own power. Legalism is the antithesis of the gospel. And the idea that grace can be freely given that covers the depth of our, our, our depravity is counterintuitive to the way that we are hardwired. You see, we're hardwired for works-based performance. We're hardwired for this. If I were to poll every single one of you, every single one of us in some category would think that we need to earn something. For the husbands in here that has said the wrong thing or done the wrong thing to your wife, don't you feel like you have to earn back the love of your wife? You have to clean some more dishes or vacuum or flowers or roses, you feel like you have to earn. That's a workspace mentality. We do this in everything. Workspace mentality is counter, is how we're hardwired, and the gospel changes that. You see, workspace, hardwired, performance-based mentality, it nullifies the gospel. It nullifies the gospel. Paul will say this later, In Galatians 2, uh, verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, through works-based merit, then Christ died for no purpose. You see how legalism can destroy the gospel just like that? And so we need to guard against that. 
Legalism is not only working our own power, but also according to our own rules. According to our own rules. I was thinking about this about an hour ago, trying to think how to really illustrate this. Back when I was uh, 18, I worked in a daycare at our church at Fuquay Baptist. Uh, it was called We Care. I worked with the school agers, uh, first grade through fifth grade. And I love playing checkers. My granddaddy taught me how to play checkers. I can remember uh, being a young kid learning all the right jumps and, and, and hoops and how to king and whatnot. I've only beat my wife once at checkers, and that was when she was nervous about uh, her citizenship test. So I don't even think that uh, qualifies. But I can remember playing checkers with these uh, fourth and fifth graders. And I, if I can just boast for a second in my own abilities, I, uh, I was winning. And this fourth, uh, fourth, fourth grader looked at me and said, no, 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 that's not how you play checkers, right? He started to tell me different rules on how to jump people. So he started doing rainbow jumps. So he was, you know, doing this you know, total uh, rainbow move or this over-the-board jump, right? He was coming up with his own rules so that he could win. This is also, too, legalism, coming up with our own rules so that we can somehow win God's favor. Think about it like this, and don't feel like you have to go there, but in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23, Jesus tells the people that the Pharisees are like that. They heap on the heavy burdens of the law without helping them live that out. These, this is our own rules, thinking that by satisfying these things, we'll earn God's love. And thirdly, legalism is working in our own power, according to our own rules, and then also working to earn God's favor. Working to earn God's favor. The main idea of legalism is that by doing certain things, one increases in favor before God. And this, this mentality of doing certain things to increase our favor before God, this is where performance-based faith comes alive. Did you catch that? This is where performance-based faith comes alive. You see, Paul is writing to the church in Galatia because of an issue called the Judaizers. What they were were a people that would come in and say that the gospel is Jesus plus something. And so Paul would come in and he would preach the gospel that is by faith and faith alone in the crucified Christ and in the risen Lord that salvation comes. And then he would leave to go to the next town with Barnabas or, or Silas or Timothy. And uh, then another group would come in called the Judaizers. And these were Jews who were saved in the gospel, but they thought that the whole gospel was the entirety of the law, saying that you had to be circumcised. And so they would come into these Greek towns and saying that it's Jesus plus something. This is where performance-based faith comes alive, is in, is in this mentality of works-based systems. You see, in our modern context, you see, we don't, we don't deal with the Judaizers nowadays. In fact, um, you'll see in your notes for the history and background that uh, this sort of proves that Paul wrote this letter because anything after 70 AD, this was not an uh, issue in the church at that time period. What we deal with is not circumcision, but rather works-based performance of faith. I can remember as a, a fourth grader myself that um, we had an offering envelope that we had to give in every Sunday morning. And on that offering envelope, there was a, did you read your Bible this week? Did you uh, share, some, share your faith with somebody? Uh, did you pray? Did you worship? Did you um, tithe? You know, whatever, insert whatever. And so 
if I can be honest with you guys, in my fourth grade self, I didn't do any of that that week. But on Sunday morning, on the way to church, I did that, right? I, I read enough, I, I would read seven verses, because right, seven days of the week, and I would pray seven prayers. I mean, I did everything I could to make sure that when I checked that, I was doing it the correct way. It was a performance-based mentality. And then I thought that I was then good enough to enter the church, go to Sunday school, and then go to worship. That's performance-based faith. And that's what nullifies the gospel. You see, we struggle with that in, this mo- in our modern context. Now, please do not leave here as thinking that if, I ju- if, if I'm reading my Bible, that turns to legalism. That's not the case. Check your heart. Is your heart bent towards wanting more of Christ, looking and living on Christ, seeing Christ as more glorious than anything, seeing that in him we can be satisfied? Or is it, I need to read my Bible because that's what's expected of me. I took the trash out as a kid because that's what was expected of me by my father. I didn't enjoy it. Who does? That was an expectation. That's the difference there. And so we need to guard against that. So legalism defined is working in our own power, by our own rules, and working to earn God's favor. So you might be thinking to yourself right now, then Dave, how do we destroy legalism? Because I'm looking at my own life, and I see legalism. I see the seeds of it. You know, I'm a recovering legalist. In fact, every one of us in here are recovering legalists of some sort. And so there's that struggle there. So how do we destroy legalism in our life? Bo knows the answer I'm about to say. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel, it cancels this mentality of workspace and says to rest on the full work of Christ on the cross. The gospel says, look what Christ did and rest in that. I use this analogy every week until the students understand this, is that Resting in the gospel is like what you guys did tonight by resting in these pews. Did anyone doubt that the pew was not going to hold you? If you did, talk to the uh, building and grounds and they'll fix that. Rather, you rested in faith that this pew was going to hold you. When we rest in the gospel, when we rest on Christ's work, when we see Christ is more glorious, when we see that he did all that was necessary at the cross for us, we rest in that. That is what we do when we sit down and we don't worry about it anymore. We rest in that. So the gospel is what destroys legalism. So let's go back to the text here, to the book of Galatians, and I'm going to reread the first five verses. And I want you in the first five verses, I want you guys to hear the gospel that Paul is outlining here. Galatians chapter one says this, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the blood, excuse me, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, the way that we destroy legalism is by reminding ourselves of the gospel. Paul is upset with the church in Galatia right now. Paul is livid. 
That's why he writes what he does in chapter 3, verse 1. But he doesn't start there. He could come in as fast as the flash and drop the hammer of Thor on this church. But rather what he does is he reminds them of the gospel of Christ. He reminds them of the gospel. He wants everyone to be on a sure footing. He wants to remind them of how they came to faith. And so he reminds them of the gospel. Look with me here. How, to destroy, how legalism is, is destroyed is the gospel is free. Paul begins in verse 3, grace to you. Grace to you. The word grace appears seven times in Galatians. And Paul uses it a hundred times in the New Testament. Paul loves this idea of grace. And we'll see next week. Well, actually, not probably next week. Probably the week after. We'll see in three weeks how grace changed Paul's life. That Paul went from being a terrorist to an evangelist. All because he encountered real grace. And so Paul understands what grace can do to a life. And how when we think that we're going to earn God's love, how it nullifies grace. And so Paul is telling the church, grace to you. He's reminding them of the grace of the gospel. And he's saying that grace is free. God's mercy and love is a free gift of Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. You see, God's favor is free. His salvation is free. His love, His mercy, His grace is free. It's not based on your performance, but Christ's performance. It's not based on what you have done, but what Christ has done for you. Grace is gloriously free because it calls us to rest in Christ. Also see here what Paul says in the very beginning. Uh, this always confused me when I was younger and I would read Galatians because I was wondering, why is he saying this? Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man. That just seems so odd to me. And then he says, to the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, what Paul is doing here is he's saying, this is not my gospel. This is not man's gospel. This is God's gospel. You see, man would not think of this gospel. How do I know that? Because we can look at every world religion and we can see a works-based mentality. We can look at Islam, Allah, the unknowable God, thinking that they have to earn God's love somehow so that he can let them into their heaven. Hinduism, this mentality that if I just appease the gods, because they have 14,000 gods or something like that, and then I'll somehow earn heaven, or Buddhism, earning, trying to make myself have inner peace so that I can enter nirvana. I don't know about you, but I don't have inner peace. And I don't know how I get inner peace by any skill set that I have, but only through Christ. Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, everything is a works-based mentality. Everything is how do I earn God's love on some fashion. This is man's gospel, a works-based God's gospel is, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to me and see Christ crucified on the cross. Come and see Christ risen. Come and see Christ seated at the throne of Christ. Come and see how glorious he is. Come and see and live on Christ. That's what the gospel is. And that's what we're called to rest in. Not man's gospel, but God's gospel and rest in it, and live in it, 
Breathe it in as you do the air and see that it is not more glorious and see that it's not more satisfying than anything that you can think of. Paul says to the church, this is not my gospel, this is God's gospel. And so he reminds them of grace. And then also see with me here in verses 3 and 4 that God the Father initiated our salvation. See here in verses 3 and 4 that God the Father initiated our salvation. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We see in Jonah 2.9, we see in Galatians 1.13-15, Ephesians 1.4-6, and these are just three examples throughout the entirety of scriptures. We see that it is God who calls, calls us to salvation. We see that it is God who calls the sinner to himself. We see that it is God who reaches to the dead and calls them by name to give them life. We see that it is God who calls us into salvation. I like this quote from Charles Spurgeon, and um, I think it fits so well with my life and probably everyone else's life. If God had not chosen me, I should have never chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Praise God that it is the one that he looks past our sin and sees something lovable. Praise God that he looks past the filth of our lives and he says, I can make you clean through Christ. And then he saves us by faith into good works, right? Ephesians 2 tells us this. I love Ephesians chapter 2. We see that we're dead in our transgressions and then, he's, then he makes us alive in Christ and then because of the gospel that we're then sent into mission for him, that's just a beautiful nature of what he does. God the Father initiates our salvation. And it's not only just God the Father who initiates the salvation, God the Son, Jesus Christ, accomplished our salvation. In verses 3 and 4 again, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. God initiated our salvation, but Christ accomplished it for us on the cross. This is counterintuitive to legalism. This idea that God, who created the heavens and the earth, the God who flung the stars into the sky, the God who holds the oceans in His hand, the God who knows our hearts, the God who, who knows us intimately. This God stepped into time and space, took on flesh, became one of us so that we could know Him. And then, as Paul writes to the church in Corinth, it says that He who knew no sin became sin so that we, we, the filthy, might become the righteousness of God. Christ accomplished so much for us at the cross that we don't even have time to, to just sit in that beautiful theology of salvation. But God the Son accomplished so much for us. And so we need to guard ourselves from deceptive gospels. We need to guard ourselves from deceptive gospels. Gospels that look like the true one with subtle differences. We need to guard ourselves from this. You see, for so many of us, we think that the gospel is simply that we come to faith, we get baptized, and then our, we have our name in the church uh, um, 
roll, thank you. Uh, and then that's it. You see, that's a deceptive gospel. You see, the gospel doesn't call me just to get wet in a tub. The gospel propels me into missions. The gospel propels me to love a dying and lost world. The gospel propels me to love others as Christ loved me. The gospel propels me into the work of God. We serve a missionary God. Have you ever thought about that? We serve a missionary God. We don't serve a stationary God. We serve a missionary God who came and sought the lost. So how then is it that we think in our mentality that if we just sit, sit and they'll come to us, that's how we do missions. That's not how we do missions. We go to the lost. We need to guard ourselves from deceptive gospels, gospels that say that we can earn God's love by our works. We need to guard our hearts from this mentality of saying that if I just go to church, then I'm saved and I'm, I'm a Christian. I was listening to the students. One of the things that, that Bo has challenged me with uh, these first few months is to observe. And uh, I don't want you to think that I'm like observing and taking notes and like this is what y'all are doing wrong. No, that's not. But one of the things that I'm learning is that the culture in Raleigh is different than the culture in Matter. Um, while Raleigh is still in the south, it's not in the southern south that you guys are in or we're in now in Matter. And so one of the things I'm doing is just observing, and I'm not trying to correct everything. And so we're sitting around uh, Jensie's kitchen table eating some spaghetti uh, and this past Wednesday, and I'm listening to the students. They're saying that you can be a Christian and not go to church. Do you see the deceptive nature of that gospel? That's the mentality of the culture. Now, I'll address that. I'll address that with the students. But right then, what I was doing was I'm just listening. And I'm saying, okay, how then, through the, through the word, can I correct this? We need to guard ourselves from deceptive gospels. Gospels that look true, but they're false. And we'll see that to understand what the true gospel is, we need to know it and love it and internalize it so that when we see counterfeit gospels, we can defend it. So we can be a church like what Peter tells us to do in 1 Peter 3.15 to give a defense for the hope that is within us. So we need to guard ourselves from that. Also, I want you to see in verses 3 and 4 here when he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age that the work of Christ at the cross and the resurrection was sufficient for our salvation. That's the true gospel. And so let's, let's internalize that for a minute, if you will. The work of Christ at the cross and at the resurrection was sufficient, meaning it is finished, it is done. We can't add anything to it for our salvation. This is why the tone of Paul's letter to the Galatians is so serious. They are cheapening grace. Another quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer is that cheap grace is the mortal enemy of our church. Our struggle today is for costly grace. Costly grace. And so we're called to hold on to costly grace and to do that, to hold on to it, we need to fix our eyes on Christ. We need to fix our eyes on the glorious Savior. We need to look and live on Christ on the cross and see that Jesus took our place on the cross to dwell on that. 
to think through the fact that it was I who should have been nailed to the cross. It was y'all that should have been nailed to the cross. It was the entire world that should have been nailed to the cross. That was what our sin deserves is that kind of death. I'm not going to go into the what the cross really looked like. That's for a Google search another time. But think through that. Jesus took our place on the cross. So we traded places, the great exchange. He took upon himself the full totality of my sin so that I might receive the full merit of his righteousness. Because of Christ, I am no longer a slave to works-based mentality, but rather I live in the fullness of his grace. Therefore, I don't see grace as cheap, but costly. I consider my Savior and I die to the flesh so that I might live to live in Christ. Paul says this later in the, in the epistle, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The death of Christ explains the presence of grace in our lives. And the death of Christ alone opens the wellspring of gratitude in the soul that leads to worshiping the God who saves, leads to worshiping the God who saves. When we come here on Sunday mornings and we sing the gospel over each other, I love that. I love hearing the praises of the church as we sing the gospel over itself, as we remind each other of the glorious nature of the cross. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace, He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. His blood was sufficient to cover a multitude of sins. His blood was availed for us so that we could rest in His grace. He said, it is finished at the cross, not it is halfway done. Now you come along and do the work. He said, it is finished. So finally, we see that legalism is destroyed by a gospel that is free. That God the Father sought us and the Son of God bought us. And in that grace, we are not freed into nothingness. Rather, we are freed into Christ, who by His Spirit begins to change us from the inside out to be more and more like His Son. Look with me here how Paul closes just the introductory part of the letter. Verse 5, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That word amen is an agreement term. That we come into agreement that this is the gospel. That this is how one comes to faith and how one is freed from sin. This is what Paul is trying to get the church to do. He's trying to get them to come into agreement and say, salvation is not by works. It is not by legalism. It is not by Uh, works-based mentality rather it is only by Christ and so to come into agreement and say amen this is the gospel amen this is how one is saved amen this is where our sin is washed away and taken as far as from the east is to the west he wants the Galatians and us to be in agreement that the only way to find favor with God is not by our works but by the cross of Christ And he calls us into agreement for that. As I said earlier, this letter is for three people. It is for the legalist. 
the one who thinks they can earn their favor with God, earn their salvation by workspace, making themselves look pretty, making themselves look lovely. I find that I have to struggle against that. That's a battle that I have to wage war on every day. I have to mortify my flesh so that I see Christ as more glorious and I let go my mentality of making myself look pretty and just rest that I'm pretty in Christ. So the letters for the legalist, letters also for the prodigal, for the one who's wandered so far from God. Maybe you're playing the church game. Maybe you, you, you come in on Sunday, you make yourself look pretty like I just said, but really you're so far from God from uh, Monday to Saturday. We need to, this letter is for the prodigal to remind them of the glorious nature of grace that can be, can be yours in Christ. His blood was availed for you as well. And then finally, the letter was also written to those who are working out their salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul writes in Philippians. This letter is for the one who continues to strive after Christ to make him your own because he has made you his own in the, in the power of his cross. This is the three people that this letter is written to. And so Galatians begins, and we'll see that it will end with grace in 6.18. It begins with a call to grace and with a call to rest in the grace of Christ. The fountain of grace still flows. The way back to grace couldn't be easier. All it takes is a heartfelt amen, uttered in response to all that God has done for us in Christ. Let us be resolved as a church, Cedar Street, to go back to grace, to rest in that, to not, to not make that the first step in a 10-step program, but rather the only step. That it is grace and grace alone that we rest in. And then in that grace, we ascribe glory and honor and praise to the one who gave himself for us, to the one that delivered us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.